Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is an episode, a bonus episode of Track by Track, this week with Andrew Marlin. It's a great episode, Andrew's such a great guy, and at the end of the episode, he uh, he drops some huge information, kind of a mandolins and beer exclusive, so stick around for that. Um, I do just want to take one second to... Uh, to just acknowledge the loss of the the bluegrass giant Tony Rice, um, it's just a bummer. The guy's music has played such a huge role in in my life and in in so many other people. And seeing all the moving and beautiful tributes on Facebook and and Instagram has been incredible. And hopefully, here by the end of the week, I'm going to have a uh, another bonus episode up, uh, a tribute episode to Tony Rice, where some of some of my favorite players, and I'm guessing some of your favorite players are going to share some of their stories and memories of Tony with us. So um, just I think it's a great way to honor honor the legend that was Tony Rice. All right, so let's jump into this episode with Andrew. Andrew's such a great cat, man, and this album is fantastic. I've been playing it for, for years now, and I couldn't believe it came out in 2018 when we talk about it. So enjoy this episode with Andrew Marlin. Be sure to go and check out what he's got going on. Stick around to the end for a Mandolins and Beer exclusive. Cheers, everybody. All right, now I want to welcome back to the podcast, this time for a track-by-track episode of his excellent Buried in a Cape album. Welcome back, Andrew Marlin. Andrew, how's it going? Uh, it's going great, Daniel. Thanks for having me back on the podcast. Man, here. it's my pleasure. My pleasure. This, uh, this album, I can't believe it's 2018 because it still feels like it came out. I mean, I guess I just listened to it a lot, <laughs> but it feels like <laughs> it came out this year. It, it's, it blows my mind. Um, yeah. Well, you know, time flies. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I think I've, I've been through three mandolins since I made that record. So, <laughs> Oh, have you really? Uh, let me think. Let me see. That was the guild that uh, Joe owns now. So. No, actually, I sold that mandolin to get the lore. So just just one mandolin since then. And then, have you gotten have you gotten another one since the lore? Another Gilkers? Yes, uh, I did have in the '80s Gilkers for a little bit. Mm-hmm. That uh, I ended up selling to a friend of mine. Um, he really liked it, and for me, I was still just playing the lore all the time. So, <laughs> yeah. understandably so. Yeah, but you know, I like I like keep my ear to the ground and if there's a, a good deal on one i'll maybe put them in circulation try and help some folks find some good instruments every now and then it's the uh the the dichotomy of this year the uh keep your ear to the ground but nobody's making any money <laughs> that's the truth <laughs> all these yeah. instruments are coming out i've seen a bunch of killer ones on the mandolin cafe in the past couple of weeks and i'm just like oh man but yeah, i get it this year is definitely you know um been one of those years where it's hard to to keep the the urge to want to sell some stuff at bay you know sure um and kind of the need to sell some stuff honestly yeah 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 i hope it uh just turns turns around for everybody here in the uh in 2021 obviously it'll be a few months i think but you know it's hopefully getting better here for sure. So let's talk about Buried in a Cape, man. I, I know we talked a little bit about some of these things on your initial podcast, but let's talk a little bit about um, the lineup and where you recorded it and the gear before we dive into the tunes, if that's cool with you. Sure. So where'd you, uh, where'd you record this at? Um, it was recorded at the butcher shop in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and the engineer for that is Sean Sullivan, who I've worked 
with a bunch since then. Um, Sean is one of my favorite people and super, super talented engineer. Um, but the, unfortunately the butcher shop is now closed. Um, Oh, is it really? Yeah. It, uh, got, it got bought up and, uh, it's probably, probably if not yet about to be turned into a condominium. So, Ugh. such as the way around Nashville. Um, oh man. You know, um, are they going to reopen up someplace else? Uh, I'm not sure. I know Ferd who owns it has been working on setting up a new studio, but I'm not sure what, uh, if it's going to be called the butcher shop or the butcher shop two or what. So. Well, that's a bummer. Yeah. That's the thing about Nashville. They, tear down all the things that have history to them and put up a monument of it, you know? Um, Ugh. so, but yeah, we got, got that one in and I went there earlier in the year and made another one there too, before they closed up. So perfect. Good timing. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> and and then, uh, who all played on this album? We were talking a little bit beforehand. The bass playing on this album is so good. Uh, you know, I'm guessing most of the people who listen to this album are mandolin players, and so they're obviously paying attention to you and the mandolin playing. But I would implore anybody who's listening to this episode right now to go back and listen to this album and listen to the bass and just focus on the groove he lays down. Yeah, Clint. Clint is the man, and uh, his tone and timing, and just his his sense of what the song needs, I think, is is just perfect for this record and every record I've made with him, you know, it just makes it easy, especially for any mandolin player listening to it. You know I mean? Without a, without a good one beat, it's hard to make your two beats sound good. So, <laughs> um, so, you know, Clint, Clint's just fun to play with. He's easy to play with and you never really have to tell him anything. You just sit down and count the song off and it just feels good right from the first note. That's great. Do you guys use a click when you play or record or no? Nope. No, it's all just live sitting in a circle and lots of bleed and lots of, uh, lots of eye contact. <laughs> <laughs> who else is there? Who rounds this lineup out? Uh, so Eli West on guitar and uh, he played some banjo as well. Um, he played his pre-war, um, 28 model oh, sunburst, cool. which is a, it's a great guitar, super powerful. And, you know, it's like a, just has that, that glue, kind of thing that that 28s do so well that it sits right between the bass and the mandolin in this way that um doesn't fight you know it doesn't like the low end doesn't get in the way of the bass and it doesn't uh detract from anything it just fits perfectly and especially with his right hand is just it's like the rhythm of the gods there so super <laughs> fun to play with eli yeah eli's got an odd style about him um that i'd I love the way he plays, you know, it kind of, he almost plays the guitar when he takes a break, like a claw hammer banjo player would, you know, where he, he, he never drops the groove. And a lot of times it's just playing around the chord. Um, you know, he's usually playing more than just one note for his solos. And I, I love that about him because sometimes as a mandolin player, I, uh, you know, and somebody who's so focused on groove and melody, a lot of times when the guitar player goes to take a break, I, I actually, I know I'm, a lot of grass players and a lot of Tony Rice players, you know, probably love that space that is created there when the guitar player goes to take a solo. But for me, I, I kind of don't like it. You know? <laughs> right. And so, uh, <clears throat> Eli is great for not dropping the groove and not, not letting that 
that little section of tone that's been occupied by the rhythm guitar drop. He, he somehow manages to keep that forward momentum um, when he goes to take a solo. And I think that's really important. And he does it well. And then you uh, on fiddle. No, fiddle is the man himself, Christian Settlemeyer. Um, uh, again, tone, tone and timing, you know, like Christian, Christian has one of the widest fiddle tones. It sounds like he's using a bow that's like a yard wide. <laughs> I don't know how he gets so much tone out of, out of that five string fiddle of his. He put a new album out this year too, didn't he? He did. Yeah. Um, we cut that one in October of 2019. Oh, cool. That's great. Yeah. And, uh, same, same lineup, Eli and Clint and myself and Christian. And what you, what you do for like your, the mandolin tone is so natural on the recording and especially I, I just love the tones you get when you're using, like when you slide and have a drone string as well. I mean, mm-hmm. it is just like, it's inspiring. It makes me want to sit down and just play like that for, <laughs> for an hour and just work on my tone. How did you capture that? No, um, no, I think again, that's Sean, you know, he's such a good engineer and, uh, thank he, let's see, he used those, some vintage Neumann KM 84s, um, on that. And so I was playing that 2000 Gilchrist Model 5 that Joe Walsh now owns. I still hate that. Um, <laughs> but I'm glad it's in good hands, you know. Um, but yeah, that is such a toneful mandolin. That mandolin is incredible. It's got a great low end to it, and the highs are just super bell-like. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you take that mandolin and put it in front of some good gear um, in a capable engineer's hands, and it's, it's hard to mess it up, honestly. So let's start it off. It's uh, uh, track one here is uh, Buried in a Cape. about it before was based on um basically mike compton's playing on that wild hog and a red brush um john hartford record and you know i think compton was like the first person to ever play a gill uh in the states and um and so to me i associate those instruments with mike compton like to me um like he basically embodies that Gilchrist tone for me. Um, and so I was really wanting to draw it out of that instrument. And so I started working with that first riff, you know, that do where it almost feels like the melody is tumbling over itself. It's almost like tripping over itself as it falls. And, uh, and to do that uh, really effectively and keep that groove going, I just play that open G string, which is a massive sounding string on that instrument um, the whole time over the entire riff. Um, and basically couldn't decide if I wanted to do a chord change over that A part or if I wanted to just drone the whole time and let those flat sevens just be 
just kind of hang out there and create this tension. Um, so that's what we ended up settling on. And Clint just pedals a low G the entire time. Um, <laughs> And creates this really fat bed for us to all lay back in and, and keep it pretty laid back on the groove and not, not try to push it too fast, you know, until we get to the end. So that was pretty much that was basically making a, uh, I know we had talked about it before, but like a meditation on that style of play and that kind of groove. Again, that says a, a lot when you say that just you know, drones on that, <laughs> the low G, I mean, you would never even notice that. That's just how good <laughs> that I think that says it all about a bass player is like when you don't even notice something like that, that is a just an excellent bass player serving the song. Yeah. Uh, Clint's even said that before. Clint's like, uh, he said, yeah, I feel like every other instrument sometimes uh, I'm going to misquote him. So this isn't, you know, verbatim, but you know, he's basically saying like as a bass player, when you're truly succeeding as a bass player is when nobody pays attention to you, which is, you know, what an odd concept. And to me, like bass players are doing so much listening, you know, because they're having to, you know, so much is riding on every note that they do. And unlike every other instrument, like if I mess up on the mandolin, it's kind of for one expected and not <laughs> a big deal. But for a bass player, you know, every note holds so much weight, literally. And, it's just harder to fake it on that instrument, you know? Like I feel let's, I always say that about bass, like a jam. Like I, if, if I have a mandolin with me and I get called up to play like a song, like as long as I can, I mean, if you just know the key, you can fake your way. You can chop if you know over sections you don't know and make it look like, you know, the song that you've never played in your life. Bass players do not have that option. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I feel for them. All right, track two, Wooden Spoon Over by the Sink. remember much about the origins of that one i mean the name of it uh emily asked me to hand her a, that wooden spoon over by the scene so i was like <laughs> okay that sounds like an old time title i'll, I'll use that <laughs> that does um, sound like an old time title man <laughs> yeah and the song itself is probably one of the more old timey ones on the record so uh you know it's just a really fun one to do you know sometimes i'll make up songs based on what i'm working on in the moment and uh one thing I've always struggled with is my pinky trying to get that to be uh, on the ready all the time. And so that melody really u- utilizes that on that seventh fret on the high E string. Um, so I wrote that melody trying to work, basically work on that, create an exercise for me um, and turned into wooden spoon over by the sink. All right. Next up is Cody Road.
Cody Road. It uh probably the easiest song on the record. Um, but I wrote that one just in a jam one night with some friends of mine up in Vermont. Um, have you been to the Green Mountain Bluegrass Festival yet? I have not. Uh, you should do it. It's I would so love to. Whenever, whenever festivals can happen again, Dude, I think um, I'm going to go to every festival I can when they start back up. I don't think you'll be alone in that. I think all of us are are wanting to hit the festival circuit again. Um, but yeah, so John and Jill Turpin, who put on that festival, um, we've been friends with them for a long time, and we were playing at their house in Vermont there, and basically just wrote that song right then and there, just as like not meaning to write a song, you know, just wanting something to jam on. And then I think, you know, a few days later, I ended up pulling it back out and actually turning it into a song and taking some of the ideas that had come out just in the jam to solidify a few things and make it feel more tune. Like, do you have like a, uh, do you have like a, a writing process that you use? Like, do you have a set time in the day or do you just pick it up and go? I just, kind of just pick it up and go whenever it comes i wish i had more of a schedule so i might i might be writing more these days but uh but i think you know usually i just kind of go when the inspiration strikes and try and try and put something down you know the voice memos on the iphone are, are super super convenient for remembering those little ideas when they come about all right and track four far hills same folks uh john and jill turpin they um super inspiring people you know so they they got two records uh two um two songs for them on the record (laughs) but um they before they started hanging out in vermont a good bit there i met them in far hills new jersey which is where they're where they live you know full-time and uh it's such a beautiful place you know i didn't know much about new jersey other than it was on the way to new york city and (laughs) right there was i-95 you know but as soon as you get off I-95, man, Jersey is such a beautiful state. And um, I, I love the little town they live in, and I've had such good times there with them that uh, I wrote, I think I wrote the song actually on Salt Spring Island, believe it or not. You're talking about Salt Spring. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. I'd just gotten this uh, John Sullivan F5 in 2015, and I, they, they're the ones who introduced me to Caleb Clowder, which made me want to john sullivan mandolin in the first place and so i wanted to kind of write an old-timey sounding tune inspired by some of the stuff that foghorn does and um what was the name of that song um so leland's waltz i think that foghorn does it's so pretty um and so i wanted to write something kind of with some of those same voicings um that are in leland's waltz and it ended up coming out um, in the form of Far Hills. All right, next up is Chasing My Tail. Mm-hmm. 
Chasing My Tail. That is the uh, ode to my incessant just mandolin buying there um, <laughs> and trading and trading and selling and all that good stuff. Um, you know, I've, I don't think I'm alone in this, but so many of my heroes have their like their one mandolin. And I've always wanted to find that thing, you know. But uh, as I get older and now I'm starting to just realize what kind of person I am, I'm just kind of comfortable with never having my one mandolin. (laughs) You know, there's just like, especially nowadays, like there's just so many great makers and so many great mandolins out there that it's fun to, you know, write some tunes on them, record them, and then let them go on and be in other people's hands. Um, But I mean, obviously with the lore, it's going to be hard to, to top that. But, uh, but you know, like all the Gilkerses and Nuggets out there, Red Diamonds making some incredible mandolins. I've never owned a Red Diamond, but I've played some incredible ones. Um, so, anyways, uh, chasing my tail was an ode to that. That basically, I didn't know if I was going to actually call it chasing my tail, T A L E, but ended up just not doing that. Um, it's actually one of the one of the trickier ones on the record. Like not a not an incredibly hard melody to play, but uh, it's just a finger twister. You know, like the way they fall isn't very intuitive. And so, especially at the speed we ended up playing it at, um, <laughs> I could I think everybody in the room was sweating on that one. But I, I love the, the version that we ended up keeping for the record. Do you have like a any set rule with, you know, some play, some bands are like, especially live bands are like, we're doing three, we're doing three takes and we'll, we'll, we'll keep the best. Did you have any sort of rules like that when going in recording live or was it just like, we'll, we'll know when we get the one? Yeah, it's more just, we know it. We'll know when we get the one. And with that crew that played on the record, it just, it didn't, I was the main holdup. So <laughs> I know the feeling <laughs> I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't, you know, trying to get anything perfect for the record. You know, I just wanted, the main thing I wanted was just to get the feel and all the takes we ended up doing had the feel and the groove. And so to me, that was the most important part. So yeah, we pretty much just play it until everyone was like, yeah, I could live with that. Or yeah, that sounds (laughs) awesome. It makes me wiggle. So we want to do that. (laughs) Well, speaking of making you wiggle, that leads us to poppy seed. that one i think in england we were uh, on a tour over there and found out that emily was pregnant and so um i'd started started writing that one but then um only had just like little snippets and so i ended up uh sitting down after i find that out and and just finishing it like in 10 minutes or something like that i was so excited and um and so uh called it poppy seed because there's a there's a website you can go to where you can monitor the size of your baby based on how many weeks pregnant you are. no kidding. Yeah. And they compare them to fruits and vegetables, you know, so it's like your baby is now the size of a 
zucchini, you know, or something like that. <laughs> yeah. um, so at the moment, when we found out how many weeks pregnant she was, um, when we figured that out, um, we went on the website and it turned out it was the size of a poppy seed. So that's why I called it that. That's perfect, man. That one leads us into our fellow's waltz. Waltz. That was, I think, the last one I wrote before we went into the studio. I, I wrote it right before we went in, and it's, I don't know, that was that was a heavy one for me, like a really, you know, super, super simple melody, but the, the voicings of the melody over the chords are just so sentimental and hit me in all the right ways. Mm -hmm. um, and so I called it Arthella's Waltz, mainly just because it was always a joke. Clint, um, the bass player had, we found, uh, he found out he was going to have his second kid like a month or two before Emily and I found out. And, uh, I always told him if it was a girl, he sh or if it was a guy, he should name it after doc Arthel, you know? And then he was like, what if it's a girl? I was like, well, call it Arthella. You know? <laughs> um, and so I did that one for him. There's called Arthella's waltz kind of just as a, as a joke, but I actually really like the name Arthella. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great name. And it sounds old timey. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like, uh, you know, a name you would from like, I don't know, 1820 or something. Yeah, absolutely. And then next up is Redwood. actually the oldest tune on that record i wrote that one on one of mine and emily's first tours um and just let it hang out for a long time and we we ended up trying a few different versions of that with the full band on the record and then couldn't couldn't get it to do the thing that i was saying like we just couldn't find the groove couldn't find that zone that made everybody want to tap their toe or wiggle their shoulders you know and so um we set it down went ahead and recorded the rest of the record. And I think it was one of the last things we did. Um, where finally I was like, man, let's just go straight old time. You know, I'd been listening to that walk along John record by John Reichman. And there was a few tracks with just mandolin and claw hammer. And I love the feel of that. So I asked Eli if he knew it on the banjo. And he of course was like, well, no, but I could figure it out really fast. And, um, he did. And we went in there and cut it just the two of us. And I, I thought it ended up being perfect for the record. And for that too. Must be nice. Hey, can you figure that? Or do you know this? Nah, but I can figure it out real fast. I've never said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why you get those people on your record. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you guys do much um, uh, rehearsing and pre-production ahead of time of this? No, I, I send them the tunes. 
maybe a month out. And then we got there the day before everybody got to Nashville the day before and just, you know, made sure we hit them all that night and then just went in the next day and started cutting. All right. Next up is under the mulberry tree. that one under a mulberry tree um <laughs> again i was i was jamming um one day just outside of this coffee shop in chapel hill um with my buddy joseph terrell from nipsa um he's a great guitar player and you know he and i whenever we're both in town would get together and play and so i started we were just messing with that progression you know and um got him to play those chords to the a part and then the melody just kind of fell out i was wanting to write something that sounded like a grisman tune and that uh it just had that kind of flow to it and so yeah when we went to cut that one um it it felt good like i liked the tune and i knew that i was it was going to end up being a good recording but i didn't know how it was going to turn out until i heard clint play bass on that and then it's like it all fell into place you know where it had that just really swingy halftime kind of feel to it you know just like the whole thing just kind of sits back in the pocket yeah and i, I think that's one of my favorite recordings on the record so and again just the bass bringing it all together totally always with clint that's always going to be the case trips around the sun that one on my 30th birthday um and yeah just wanted to write like you know again going back to the wild hog and the red brush record something that had that very modally hard driving old time feel to it and that melody just kind of fell out you know and and playing with that kind of groove that real swingy compton kind of just like just hard driving right hand kind of, kind of feel. And I thought Christian, like, well, I mean, we've talked a lot about Clint and Eli, but like Christian on the fiddle just really takes these songs and, and brings them to life. You know I mean? He, he, he's got such a singy uh, style about him on the fiddle. That just feels like a lead voice. And then that one, especially when he started playing that one, 
it just like all of us just made a stink face as soon as he started playing it because it was <laughs> it was it's just incredible the way you know it's like he didn't even need the rest of the band the way he plays that melody speaking of of him and his in his album to give it a plug and again it was the same same sort of band but obviously without taking apart the fact that they aren't your tunes but you're playing on them what's the mindset in a session like that suddenly where you are um because you're just important just as important as your own record as you are to his what was your mindset going in to do his album uh, as opposed to you know this album um actually so christian and i've talked about it a bunch he when we play together the mandolin and the fiddle either something about the way we feel the beat or feel the, the rhythm of it it uh it almost feels like one instrument sometimes um and so my main goal was going into his record was to learn the melodies exactly like he played them. Um, so he was sending us these melodies, you know, um, and I would just learn them exactly like he played it. So that way, when we would go to play them together, it didn't sound flammy. It just sounded like one instrument, you know, like where the mandolin stopped, the fiddle picked it up, and where the fiddle stopped, the mandolin picked it up. So it just had this, like, one super round tone to it. Um, and which was really great because honestly, like he is so leagues ahead of like the way I think about music, especially in his left hand, you know, what he's able to accomplish there. Um, it was a really good teacher for me to learn those songs and like have to kind of enter into his world a little bit and, you know, use my, I use my pinky a lot more than ever I had before and, um, you know, figure out how to, play a little a little quieter honestly like some of these tunes like I'd, sometimes I'd, i have a tendency to play hard and uh and i think with the nature of some of his songs and the way they were written they just weren't written for a, a heavy attack on the right hand and so i had to learn some new dynamics and especially to make it match his timbre there and you know what he was going for tonally um so that's pretty much what i was going for the mindset that i was in it's like you know what what can I do to take what he's written on the fiddle and make it transfer to the fiddle, uh, to the mandolin and have it make sense and have it fit in the same song. And so like when we trade back and forth, it doesn't sound like a different singer all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, man. That's so great to hear you say that. Like this is, it's so obvious why, uh, you're just surrounded by such great musicians as well is because you are just, you are the same. You are a great musician. That's, you know, thoughtful, about everybody else and always thinking about the song. Oh, I appreciate that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, I was always a songwriter first, you know, even when I came to the mandolin, I started playing mandolin when I was 20. And before that, I was just always a guitar player and songwriter. So, um, you know, I think, I think that's still that, that idea of coming at the song from a songwriter's perspective, even if it's just an instrumental, is still very important to me. I love this next title, Mouse Trap in the Oven. <laughs>
that. I wrote that tune. Actually, that was a pretty old tune as well. Not quite as old as Redwood, but um, had been around for a while. But I uh, wrote that one. Emily and I had this one rental house that it was it was a good house, but it definitely had a mouse problem. And uh, you know, not to our it wasn't it wasn't our doing. Like we're we're not messy housekeepers or anything. Like <laughs> sure. But it kept ending up in the oven. I don't know how a mouse gets in the oven other than I mean, I guess there's some openings on on the bottom. I'm not sure. I don't know how ovens are made, honestly. But uh <laughs> it just seems like it would be really impossible to get in there. And but we kept finding mouse droppings in the oven, which is disgusting. Um and so we'd start putting mouse traps in the oven and we caught them every single time. Nice. <laughs> um and so obviously we don't live there anymore because we needed to get away from that. But uh but it, it made for a good title on the song. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Man, that was also one of those one well, the recording of that one. If you notice I'm like barely that you know, you were speaking earlier to the fact that if you don't know the song, you can always just chop and like not even hit a chord. And man, we had stayed up so late the night before we recorded that song, um, you know, just like hanging out. I hadn't, um, you know, seen all those guys in a while. So sometimes we'll just stay up way too late. And um, I could not make myself remember the chords. And they're not hard chords, but <laughs> could not make my brain just like like communicate to my hands of what chord went where. <laughs> and so if you notice on that recording, I basically just, chop a muted chop for you know anytime i'm not playing the melody and uh well you know it, but it had the feel so i was like oh, screw it we'll just go with that you know? <laughs> it's, it's perfect <laughs> it's my album <laughs> yeah <laughs> how many days did you record this album over um we recorded it in three days we tracked it all and mixed it on the third day holy cow man um that's kind of just how I've gotten to where I like to make records like uh, Mandolin Orange Records too. And um, I've been working on some stuff this year and same thing where it's just, you know, hopefully everybody knows the melodies when we get in there, we arrange it on the fly and just track it and move on, you know, because I think for me, it's, it's not about making anything perfect. It's about capturing the feel of, of people sitting in a room and playing music together that are, you know, playing the song. And so if it feels good and the song feels like it's coming across, then that's basically what I'm trying to achieve. I'm not trying to show off anything I can do on the fretboard because I would, it would take me a lot longer to make a record if that was the case. Did it take you a long time to come up with the sequencing of the album? Um, I don't remember, honestly. Um, I don't think so. It's, you know, I, Christian's really good about that, bouncing ideas off of him and, um, and seeing what goes where. I, I think between the two of us, it didn't take too long to get it, you cool. know? Yeah. All right. How about two can play that game?
one, I wanted to write a tune in B flat and couldn't, couldn't, didn't know where to start. So I, um, just kind of just went for it one night. Uh, I think Eli was actually at our house and, uh, cause he and I were doing some duo shows and, um, I started writing that tune and then the next morning I'd basically stayed up all night writing that song. And then the next morning when he woke up, I was like, Hey, check this out. Let's play this tune. <laughs> um, and, uh, I'd written that the intro to that tune was actually the B part, um, where it actually goes to a G major in B flat, which I love the feel of that, you know? Um, and, when we went to go record it, we couldn't do it in a way that made sense for some reason, you know, um, it just felt like the song was starting and stopping, you know, too often. So we ended up taking that B part and making it more like a head and an out, you know, maybe like an old jazz tune would do like John Coltrane might put, you know, doing one of his records. Um, and it made all the difference in the world and all of a sudden made that song come to life and, and feel right. So, uh, and the title that was just, as silly as it sounds you know like we were just all joking about what we should call it and that's what ended up coming out there <laughs> how in the world did you get on two cans <laughs> <laughs> don't ask me uh, you know who knows uh life without coffee which it sounds like you probably used some coffee uh in the recording of this album <laughs> Lots of coffee making this record. Um, that that was also written right around the same time as Poppy Seed, um, where Emily gave up coffee when she was pregnant. And that was like, talk about small, like small little heroics. Um, like that, that to me was such a, I don't know, such a, one of those moments where you realize that mothers are so powerful it's like the fact that she would give up coffee for this tiny little thing that she was growing in her body like of course she would and anybody would but like it's such a small thing that you don't think about you know that caffeine would be really bad for um you know your unborn child so she gave that up and i had some pretty groggy mornings there and i i just i just thought it was a really beautiful thing that she was doing and very, it took a lot of, it takes a lot of strength to do those little things, you know? Um, so I wanted to write a, a strong sounding song for, and, uh, came up with life without coffee. Yeah. That's beautiful too, man. What a great story. And then the final track bats in the belfry. in the belfry um that one man when i when i watch super 
emotional movies or TV shows, which is why I don't do them very often. I like, I have to process them. And that one I wrote, I mean, I watched La La Land and, uh, I don't know if any of your listeners have watched La La Land or whoever's listening to this right now, um, have listened or watched La La Land. But if you do, it is so heartbreaking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it just wrecked me, you know? Um, and so I had to process that. And so I wrote that, that first tune, you know, the, the little mandolin, like kind of just real, arpeggiated little picking thing on the mandolin there um after watching that movie and to me it sounded kind of almost like a music box um and the second tune when it goes into the the fast part of it the two together worked in such a way that it kind of sounded like an undoing an unwinding almost of your sanity and <laughs> yeah. bats in the belfry is i think just a an old saying that kind of implies just that it's like oh he's got a few bats in the belfry there um and i thought it was a, a fitting title for the the feel of that tune well, man, is one of my favorite albums, and and we saved this. Normally, I would start the episode with um with what you've been up to uh, lately, but we decided to wait till the very end to talk about that. So, what have you been up to with this with this time off? Uh, writing a lot of instrumentals, actually. Um, yeah, I haven't been able to put this time into words. You know, um, I guess just cause it's so uncertain that, um, finding, finding the words and to describe how I feel and, you know, the, the state of the world right now has been very difficult for me, but, um, those feelings are, are obviously very present and this, the uncertainty is weighing heavy. And so, um, still need to get it out somehow. And instrumentals have been a, a very good quarantine companion for me. Um, so I, uh, back in June, Sean called me up, the engineer on Buried in the Cape, and told me that uh, the butcher shop was closing. And so uh, I scrambled together enough tunes to make a record and sent uh, Christian and Clint a text, and also uh, Josh Oliver, who plays guitar and mandolin orange with us. And asked if they wanted to record a record at the butcher shop before it closes. And they said, sure. So I sent them the tunes. They had about a week to learn them. And uh, we went in there in, in three days and made another record. So that one should be coming out in February. And then also um, another batch of tunes that I started writing after that. Um, I bought this little A2, little Gibson 1921 A2. Oh, man, nice. I have been dying and, to get a... An old Gibson and these, I'm not kidding. I can't tell you how many I've looked at in the last three weeks. <laughs> yeah. 
Man, I tell you, they're so fun. And um, I, I ended up still, so basically, I'll, I'll, I'll start from the beginning. So I bought this A2, and um, I had never spent much time with an overhaul, you know. And so it was incredible how inspiring that can be to, like, know the fretboard, not have to learn anything, but just have a completely new tone to play with. And I wrote enough songs for a record in about two weeks' time. Um and uh, it was right after, actually, that Tyler Childers record that I played on. Um, I took that A2 up there and ended up playing it on the record and just loved how it fit in the band and, like, what it was, like, how it was making me play and inspired me to do a record with it. And because I didn't have really any songs because I just recorded that album in June, um, I needed to write some stuff. Started writing, and the songs just came and came and came. And every time I was, like sit down with that instrument i'd write a new tune um so now i'm sitting on another record as well that we just recorded three weeks ago um now it's december 21st right now so that'll be relevant um (laughs) (laughs) um but uh i ended up not recording it on the a2 obviously i played the the lore just because when it comes down to make a record nothing sounds better than that or at least i don't i don't feel as comfortable as I do on any other, all my other mandolins, like the Lord just kind of does it all. So I played it on the Lord, but they were all written on that little A2. Um, and that one will also be coming out in February. So I'm going to be throwing two at the world here very soon. Well, man, well, we will uh, have you on with the, when those are coming out and we'll do a, do a special episode and, and talk about those and the recording of those. I cannot wait to hear them, man. I'm so excited. When you had mentioned that via text yesterday, I was like, what? Oh, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, you'll be, I guess you'll be one of the first people to hear them. So uh, I'll, I'll send them to you as soon as they're all mixed and mastered there. Awesome, man. I cannot wait. And I, I really appreciate you doing this, man. Again, I, I love the album. I love your playing. It's it's uh you're super inspirational to me. I mean, I can't think of a higher compliment to give a musician than making like every time I listen to your album, like I want to pick up my mandolin and play. I mean, it just, you know, it just moves me. And I, I really appreciate that, man. So thank you for all you do. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. I, you know, feels good to hear that and to know that right now, especially coming towards the end of a year with no work and no feedback in terms of that kind of stuff, you know, uh, and uh, no, I appreciate you doing this. Hopefully, my answers were clear enough. I haven't talked to many adults throughout this entire <laughs> quarantine. I've been spending most of my time talking to a two-year-old. So, uh, um, but no, I, I do appreciate you doing this, Daniel. And I look forward to hearing it all put together. Absolutely, man. Thank you. <laughs> 